summit of a swelling mound, whose sides are wooded near the base with the gnarled trees of the primeval forest, stands the old chateau of my ancestors. For centuries its lofty battlements have frowned down upon the wild and rugged countryside about, serving as a home and stronghold for the proud house whose honoured line is older even than the moss-grown castle walls. These ancient turrets, stained by the storms of generation, and crumbling under the slow yet mighty pressure of time, formed in the ages of feudalism, one of the most dreaded and formidable fortresses in all of France. From its machicolated parapets and mounted battlements, barons, counts, and even kings had been defied, yet never had its spacious halls resounded to the footstep of the invader. But since those glorious years, all is changed, a poverty but little above the level of dire want, together with a pride of name that forbids its alleviation by the pursuits of commercial life, have prevented the scions of our line from maintaining their estates in pristine splendour, and the falling stones of the walls, the overgrown vegetation in the parks, the dry and dusty moat, the ill-paved courtyards and toppling towers without as well as the sagging floors, the worm-eaten wainscots, and the faded tapestries within, all tell a gloomy tale of fallen grandeur. As the ages passed, first one, then another, of the four great turrets were left to ruin, until at last but a single tower housed the sadly reduced descendants of the once mighty lords of the estate. 
It was in one of these vast and gloomy chambers of this remaining tower that I, Antoine, last of the unhappy and accursed Comtes de C, first saw the light of day ninety long years ago. Within these walls and amongst the dark and shadowy forests, the wild ravines and grottoes of the hillside below were spent the first years of my troubled life. My parents I never knew. My father had been killed at the age of thirty-two, a month before I was born, by the fall of a stone somehow dislodged from one of the deserted parapets of the castle, and my mother having died at my birth. My care and education devolved solely upon one remaining servitor, an old and trusted man of considerable intelligence, whose name I remember as Pierre. I was an only child, and the lack of companionship which this fact entailed upon me was augmented by the strange care exercised by my aged guardian in excluding me from the society of the peasant children whose abodes were scattered here and there upon the plains that surround the base of the hill. At the time, Pierre said that this restriction was imposed upon me because my noble birth placed me above association with such plebeian company. Now I know that its real object was to keep from my ears the idle tales of the dread curse upon our line that were nightly told and magnified by the simple tenantry as they conversed in hushed accents in the glow of their cottage halves. Thus isolated and thrown upon my own resources, I spent the hours of my childhood in poring over the ancient tombs that filled the shadow-haunted library of the chateau, and in roaming without aim or purpose through the perpetual dusk of the spectral wood that clothes the sides of the hill near its foot. It was perhaps an effect of such surroundings that my mind early acquired a shade of melancholy. Those studies and pursuits which partake of the dark and occult in nature most strongly claimed my attention. Of my own race I was permitted to learn singularly little, yet what small knowledge of it I was able to gain seemed to depress me much. Perhaps it was at first only the manifest reluctance of my old preceptor to discuss with me my paternal ancestry that gave rise to the terror which I ever felt at the mention of my great house. Yet as I grew out of childhood, I was able to piece together disconnected fragments of discourse, let slip from the unwilling tongue which had begun to falter in approaching senility that had a sort of relation to a certain circumstance which I had always deemed strange, but which now became dimly terrible. The circumstance to which I allude is the early age at which all the comptes of my line had met their end. Whilst I had hitherto considered this but a natural attribute of a family of short-lived men, I afterward pondered long upon these premature deaths, and began to connect them with the wanderings of the old man, who often spoke of a curse, which for centuries had prevented the lives of the holders of my title from exceeding the span of thirty-two years. Upon my twenty-first birthday, the aged Pierre gave to me a family document, which he said had for many generations been handed down from father to son, and continued by each possessor. Its contents were of the most startling nature, and its perusal confirmed the gravest of my apprehensions. At this time, my belief in the supernatural was firm and deep-seated, else I should have dismissed with scorn 
The incredible narrative unfolded before my eyes. The paper carried me back to the days of the 13th century, when the old castle in which I sat had been a feared and impregnable fortress. It told of a certain ancient man who had once dwelt on our estates, a person of no small accomplishments. Though little above the rank of peasant, by name Mikel, usually designated by the surname of Mauvais, the evil, on account of his sinister reputation. He had studied beyond the custom of his kind, seeking such things as the philosopher's stone or the elixir of eternal life, and was reputed wise in the terrible secrets of black magic and alchemy. Mikel Mauvais had one son named Charles, a youth as proficient as himself in the hidden arts, and who had therefore been called Le Sorcier, or the Wizard. This pair, shunned by all honest folk, were suspected of the most hideous practices. Old Mikel was said to have burnt his wife alive as a sacrifice to the devil, and the unaccountable disappearances of many small peasant children were laid at the dreaded door of these two. Yet through the dark natures of the father and the son ran one redeeming ray of humanity. The evil old man loved his offspring with fierce intensity, whilst the youth had for his parent a more than filial affection. One night the castle on the hill was thrown into the wildest confusion by the vanishment of young Godfrey, son to Henry de Comte. A searching party, headed by the frantic father, invaded the cottage of the sorcerers, and there came upon old Michael Mauvais, busy over a huge and violently boiling cauldron. Without certain cause, in the ungoverned madness of fury and despair, the Comte laid hands on the aged wizard, and ere he released his murderous hold, his victim was no more. Meanwhile, joyful servants were proclaiming aloud the finding of young Godfrey in a distant and unused chamber of the great edifice, telling too late that poor Michel had been killed in vain. As the Comte and his associates turned away from the lowly abode of the alchemists, the form of Charles Le Saucier appeared through the trees. The excited chatter of the menials standing about told him what had occurred, yet he seemed at first unmoved by his father's fate. He pronounced in dull yet terrible accents the curse that ever afterward haunted the house of sea. May never a noble of thy murderous line survive to reach a greater age than thine, spake he, when suddenly, leaping backward into the black wood, he drew from his tunic a phial of colorless liquid which he threw in the face of his father's slayer as he disappeared behind the inky curtain of the night. The Comte died without utterance and was buried the next day, but little more than two and thirty years from the hour of his birth. No trace of the assassin could be found. The relentless bands of peasants scoured the neighboring woods and the meadow land around the hill. Thus, Time and the want of a remainder dulled the memory of the curse in the minds of the late Comte's family, so that when Godfrey, innocent cause of the whole tragedy and now bearing the title, was killed by an arrow whilst hunting, at the age of thirty-two, there were no thoughts save those of grief at his demise. But when years afterward, the next young Comte, 
Robert, by name, was found dead in a nearby field from no apparent cause. The peasants told in whispers that their seigneur had but lately passed his thirty-second birthday. When surprised by early death, Louis sent a Robert was found drowned in the moat at the same fateful age, and thus down through the centuries ran the ominous chronicle. Henry's Robert, Antoine's, and Armand snatched from happy and virtuous lives when a little below the age of their unfortunate ancestor at his murder. That I had left at most, but eleven years of further existence was made certain to me by the words which I read. My life, previously held at small value, now became dearer to me each day as I delved deeper and deeper into the mysteries. Of the hidden world of black magic, isolated as I was, modern science had produced no impression upon me, and I laboured as in the Middle Ages, as rapt as had been old Michel and young Charles themselves in the acquisition of demonological and alchemical learning. Yet, read as I might, in no manner could I account for the strange curse upon my line. In unusually rational moments, I would even go so far as to seek a natural explanation. Attributing the early deaths of my ancestors to the sinister Charles Le Sorcier and his heirs, yet having found upon careful inquiry that there were no known descendants of the alchemist, I would fall back to my occult studies and once more endeavour to find a spell that would release my house from its terrible burden. Upon one thing I was absolutely resolved: I should never wed, for since no other branches of my family were in existence. I might thus end the curse with myself. As I drew near the age of thirty, old Pierre was called to the land beyond. Alone, I buried him beneath the stones of the courtyard about which he had loved to wander in life. Thus, I was left to ponder on myself as the only human creature within the great fortress. And in my utter solitude, my mind began to cease its vain protest against the impending doom. To become almost reconciled to the fate which so many of my ancestors had met, much of my time was now occupied in the exploration of the ruined and abandoned halls and towers of the old chateau, which in youth fear had caused me to shun, and some of which old Pierre had once told me had not been trodden by human foot for over four centuries. Strange and awesome were many of the objects I encountered: furniture covered by the dust of ages. And crumbling with the rot of long dampness, met my eyes. Cobwebs in a profusion never before seen by me were spun everywhere, and huge bats flapped their bony and uncanny wings on all sides of the otherwise untenanted gloom. Of my exact age, even down to days and hours, I kept a most careful record, for each movement of the pendulum of the massive clock in the library. Told off so much more of my doomed existence. At length, I approached that time which I had so long viewed with apprehension, since most of my ancestors had been seized some little while before they reached the exact age of the Comte Henry at his end. I was every moment on the watch for the coming of the unknown death. In what strange form the curse should overtake me, I knew not. But I was resolved, at least, that it should not find me a cowardly or a passive victim. With new vigor, I applied myself to my examination of the old chateau and its contents. 
It was upon one of the longest of all my excursions of discovery in the deserted portion of the castle, less than a week before that fatal hour, which I must mark the utmost limit of my stay on earth, beyond which I could have not even the slightest hope of continuing to draw breath, that I came upon the culminating event of my whole life. I had spent the better part of the morning in climbing up and down half-ruined staircases in one of the most dilapidated of the ancient turrets. As the afternoon progressed, I sought the lower levels, descending into what appeared to be either a medieval place of confinement or a more recently excavated storehouse for gunpowder. As I slowly traversed the nitre-encrusted passageway at the foot of the last staircase, the paving became very damp, and soon I saw by the light of my flickering torch that a blank, water-stained wall impeded my journey. Turning to retrace my steps, my eye fell upon a small trapdoor with a ring, which lay directly beneath my feet. Pausing, I succeeded with difficulty in raising it, whereupon there was revealed a black aperture, exhaling noxious fumes which caused my torch to sputter, and disclosing in the unsteady glare the top of a flight of stone steps. As soon as the torch, which I lowered into the repellent depths, burned freely and steadily, I commenced my descent. The steps were many, and led to a narrow stone-flagged passage, which I knew must be far underground. This passage proved of great length, and terminated in a massive oaken door, dripping with the moisture of the place, and stoutly resisting all my attempts to open it. Ceasing after a time my efforts in this direction, I had proceeded back some distance toward the steps, when there suddenly fell to my experience one of the most profound and maddening shocks capable of reception by the human mind. Without warning, I heard the heavy door behind me creak slowly open upon its rusted hinges. My immediate sensations are incapable of analysis. To be confronted in a place as thoroughly deserted as I had deemed the old castle, with evidence of the presence of man or spirit, produced in my brain a horror of the most acute description. When at last I turned and faced the seat of the sound, my eyes must have started from their orbits at the sight that they beheld. There in the ancient Gothic doorway stood a human figure. It was that of a man clad in a skullcap and a long medieval tunic of dark color. His long hair and flowing beard were of a terrible and intense black hue and of incredible profusion. His forehead high beyond the usual dimensions, his cheeks deep sunken and heavily lined with wrinkles, and his hands long, claw-like and gnarled, were of such a deathly marble whiteness as I have never elsewhere seen in a man. His figure, lean to the proportions of a skeleton, was strangely bent and almost lost within the voluminous folds of his peculiar garment. But strangest of all were his eyes, twin caves of abysmal blackness, profound in expression of understanding, yet inhuman in degree of wickedness. These were now fixed upon me, piercing my soul with their hatred and rooting me to the spot whereon I stood. At last the figure spoke in a rumbling voice that chilled me through with its dull hollowness and latent malevolence. The language in which the discourse was clothed 
was that debased form of Latin in use amongst the more learned men of the Middle Ages and made familiar to me by my prolonged researches into the works of the old alchemists and demonologists. The apparitions spoke of the curse which had hovered over my house, told me of my coming end, dwelt on the wrong perpetrated by my ancestor against old Michel Morvet, and gloated over the revenge of Charles Le Sorcier. He told me how the young Charles had escaped into the night, returning in after years to kill Godfrey, the heir, with an arrow just as he approached the age which had been his father's at his assassination. How he had secretly returned to the estate and established himself unknown in the even then deserted subterranean chamber whose doorway now framed a hideous narrator. How he had seized Robert, son of Godfrey, in a field, forced poison down his throat and left him to die at the age of thirty-two, thus maintaining the foul provisions of his vengeful curse. At this point I was left to imagine the solution of the greatest mystery of all, how the curse had been fulfilled since that time when Charles Le Saucier must in the course of nature have died, for a man digressed into an account of the deep alchemical studies of the two wizards, father and son, speaking most particularly of the researches of Charles Le Saucier concerning the elixir which should grant to him who partook of it eternal life and youth. His enthusiasm had seemed for the moment to remove from his terrible eyes the hatred that had at first so haunted them. But suddenly, the fiendish glare returned, and with a shocking sound like the hissing of a serpent, the stranger raised a glass file with the evident intent of ending my life as had Charles Le Saucier six hundred years before ended that of my ancestor. Prompted by some persevering instinct of self-defense, I broke through the spell that had hitherto held me immovable and flung my now dying torch at the creature who menaced my existence. I heard the file break harmlessly against the stones of the passage. As the tunic of the strange man caught fire and lit the horrid scene with a ghastly radiance, the shriek of fright and impotent malice emitted by the would-be assassin proved too much for my already shaken nerves, and I fell prone upon the slimy floor in a total faint. When at last my senses returned, all was frightfully dark, and my mind remembering what had occurred shrank from the idea of beholding more. Yet curiosity overmastered all. Who, I asked myself, was this man of evil, and how came he within the castle walls? Why should he seek to avenge the death of poor Michel Mauvais? And how had the curse been carried on through all the long centuries since the time of Charles Le Saucier? The dread of years was lifted off my shoulders, for I knew that he whom I had felled was the source of all my danger from the curse. And now that I was free, I burned with the desire to learn more of the sinister thing which had haunted my line for centuries, and made of my own youth one long continued nightmare. Determined upon further exploration, I felt in my pockets for flint and steel, and lit the unused torch which I had with me. First of all, the new light revealed the distorted and blackened form of the mysterious stranger. The hideous eyes were now closed. Disliking the sight, I turned away 
and entered a chamber beyond a gothic door. Here I found what seemed much like an alchemist's laboratory. In the corner was an immense pile of a shining yellow metal that sparkled gorgeously in the light of the torch. It may have been gold, but I did not pause to examine it, for I was strangely affected by that which I had undergone. At the farther end of the apartment was an opening leading out into one of the many wild ravines of the dark hillside forest. Filled with wonder, yet now realizing how the man had obtained access to the chateau, I proceeded to return. I had intended to pass by the remains of the stranger with averted face. But as I approached the body, I seemed to hear emanating from it a faint sound, as though life were not yet wholly extinct. Aghast, I turned to examine the charred and shriveled figure on the floor. Then, all at once, the horrible eyes, blacker even than the seared face in which they were set, opened wide with an expression which I was unable to interpret. The cracked lips tried to frame words which I could not well understand. Once I caught the name of Charles the Sorcier, and again I fancied that the words years and curse issued from the twisted mouth. Still, I was at a loss to gather the purport of his disconnected speech. At my evident ignorance of his meaning, the pitchy eyes once more flashed malevolently at me, until, helpless as I saw my opponent to be, I trembled as I watched him. Suddenly, the wretch, animated with his last burst of strength, raised his hideous head from the damp and sunken pavement. Then, as I remained paralyzed with fear, he found his voice, and in his dying breath screamed forth those words which have ever afterward haunted my days and my nights. Fall, he shrieked, can you not guess my secrets? Have you no brain whereby you may recognize the will? which has through six long centuries fulfilled the dreadful curse upon your house? Have I not told you of the great elixir of eternal life? Know you not how the secret of alchemy was solved? I tell you, it is I, 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 that have lived for six hundred years to maintain my revenge, for I am Charles Le Sorcier. End of The Alchemist Recording by Alex Lau Manchester, 2012 Thank you everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Check out the show at pgttcm.com Check out the show notes on your listening device, on your smart device, on your laptop, or however you're checking this show out. Follow the show notes to check out the people who have been on the show as guests, find out what the books they're working on, or art projects, or movies. And of course, check out the sponsors. Support the people who support us. Find cool stuff from those folks over at Psychedelic Water. It's water with mild psychedelics that are legal in America, suspended in green tea and other delicious flavors. And we've also got Taza Chocolate. And Taza Chocolate, they are out of Somerset, Massachusetts. It's stone ground chocolate. They use dairy alternatives. It's vegan. And oh my good, 
Yes, it is really good. Some of them come in bars. Some of them come in those eels, like the abuelita. You can mix it in into uh, you make your own hot chocolates. Really good stuff. I really you can eat it by itself. And that's Tasa. That's in the show notes. Who else do we got? We got Glary. Oh man, I love Glary. Glary is really inexpensive guitars. You can get some really good prices on amplifiers. Get good prices on mandolins. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. Not just guitars. I love guitars, but Glary has more than just guitars. Copper Cow. Okay, Copper Cow is amazing. It's these little packages that have this uh, coffee already inside. Some of them come with creamers. It's flavors like black, lavender, churro, salt caramel. They've got some really good flavors. I really like the lavender and the black. I'm going to try the churro pretty soon. Um, I have friends who have purchased this and they highly recommend it. Coffee from Vietnam. And just this really, 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 really good Vietnamese pour-over coffee that I highly recommend. Golden Goat CBD. Check it out. Golden Goat CBD. I have anxiety issues. I love, I live in a state where you can purchase uh, cannabis legally. So I don't go with their Delta, Delta 8. But do you, do you live somewhere where you can't just, I don't know, walk three blocks and everyone goes hey db and you get your order that you phoned in and then go home and then work on your podcast no maybe you live someplace that's awful what if you're in texas anyway uh check out check out check them out golden goat cbd delta eight they have chewables they've got uh, gummies. They've got cool stuff like that. They've got uh, tinctures and whatever you need to get you going in the direction you need to be going. The Fret Wire. DIY guitar, guitar parts, and guitar accessories. Centrally located in Utah. Get what you want. Pretty darn quick. The Fret Wire. So yeah, they've got a pretty good community of people. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an advanced lutineer. The Fretwire, they've got people who will answer your questions. I assume they're, they're comment boards and stuff like that when I have questions on, like, oh, man, I want to make a baritone flying V, uh, but how am I going to get a baritone neck on a Gibson body? Wait a minute. This flying V was so custom already that, oh, man, okay. Better check the Fretwire forums, see if anyone else has had this problem. And generally, since there's so many people with the Fretwire, that work with the Fretwire, that do stuff with the Fretwire, it's like having a massive community. And also, pretty good prices, uh, pretty decent shipping, and I have to say, I, I like them. I've, I've worked with other companies in the past for building guitars. I like the Fretwire. And, yeah, if you want to get into building guitars, if you've just, I don't know, during the pandemic, did you learn how to play guitar and want to build them? I did the opposite way around first. I learned how to build guitars, and then I learned how to set up guitars, and then I learned how to play guitars. So, I don't know, maybe you want to do it the opposite way of me. You know how to play a guitar, now you want to learn the guts of it. Anyway, Fretwire's got you covered. Check them out in the show notes. Back to the show. Joe Crosto, the minister's black veil. The sexton stood in the porch of Milford Meeting House, pulling busily at the bell rope. The old people of the village came stooping along the street. Children with bright faces tripped merrily besides their parents, or mimicked a graver gait in the conscious dignity of their Sunday clothes. 
Spruce bachelors looked sidelong at the pretty maidens and fancied that the Sabbath sunshine made them prettier than on weekdays. When the throng had mostly streamed into the porch, the sexton began to toll the bell, keeping his eye on the Reverend Mr. Hooper's door. The first glimpse of the clergyman's figure was a signal for the bell to seize its summons. But what has good Parson Hooper got upon his face? cried the sexton in astonishment. All within hearing immediately turned about, and beheld the semblance of Mr. Hooper, pacing slowly his meditative way towards the meeting-house. With one accord they started, expressing more wonder than if some strange minister were coming to dust the cushions of Mr. Hooper's pulpit. "'Are you sure it is our parson?' inquired Goodman Gray of the sexton. "'Of a certainty it is good, Mr. Hooper,' replied the sexton. "'He was to have exchanged pulpits with Parson Shoot of Westbury, "'but Parson Shoot sent to excuse himself yesterday, "'being to preach a funeral sermon. "'The cause of so much amazement may appear sufficiently slight. "'Mr. Hooper, a gentlemanly parson of about thirty, "'though still a bachelor, was dressed with due clerical neatness, "'as if a careful wife had starched his band "'and brushed the weekly dust from his Sunday's garb. "'There was but one thing remarkable in his appearance.' swathed about his forehead, and hanging down over his face, so low as to be shaken by his breath, Mr. Hooper had on a black veil. On a nearer view it seemed to consist of two folds of crepe, which entirely concealed his features, except the mouth and chin, but probably did not intercept his sight, further than to give a darkened aspect to all living and inanimate things. With this gloomy shape before him, good Mr. Hooper walked onward, at a slow and quiet pace, stooping somewhat and looking on the ground, as is customary with abstracted men, yet nodding kindly to those of his parishioners who still waited on the meeting-house steps. But so wonderstruck were they that his greeting hardly met with a return. "'I can't really feel as if good Mr. Hooper's face was behind that piece of crape,' said the sexton. "'I don't like it,' muttered an old woman, as she hobbled into the meeting-house. He has changed himself into something awful, only by hiding his face. Our parson has gone mad, cried Goodman Gray, following him across the threshold. A rumor of some unaccountable phenomenon had preceded Mr. Hooper into the meeting-house, and set all the congregation astir. Few could refrain from twisting their heads towards the door. Many stood upright and turned directly about, while several little boys clambered upon the seats, and came down again with a terrible racket. There was a general bustle, a rustling of women's gowns and shuffling of the men's feet, greatly at variance with that hushed repose which should attend the entrance of the minister. But Mr. Hooper appeared not to notice the perturbation of his people. He entered with an almost noiseless step, bent his head mildly to the pews on each side, and bowed as he passed his old parishioner, a white-haired great-grandsire, who occupied an armchair in the center of the aisle. It was strange to observe how slowly this venerable man became conscious of something singular in the appearance of his pastor. He seemed not to fully to partake of the prevailing wonder till Mr. Hooper had ascended the stairs and showed himself in the pulpit, face to face with his congregation, except for the black veil. The mysterious emblem was never once withdrawn. It shook with his measured breath as he gave out the psalm. It threw its obscurity between him and the holy page, as he read the scriptures, and while he prayed, the veil lay heavily on his uplifted countenance. 
Did he seek to hide it from the dread being whom he was addressing? Such was the effect of this simple piece of crepe that more than one woman of delicate nerves was forced to leave the meeting house. Yet perhaps the pale-faced congregation was almost as fearful a sight to the minister as his black veil to them. Mr. Hooper had the reputation of a good preacher, but not an energetic one. He strove to win his people heavenward by mild persuasive influences rather than to drive them thither by the thunder of the word. The sermon which he now delivered was marked by the same characteristics of style and manner as a general series of his pulpit oratory. But there was something, either in the sentiment of the discourse itself or in the imagination of the auditors, which made it greatly the most powerful effort that they had ever heard from their pastor's lips. It was tinged rather more darkly than usual with the gentle gloom of Mr. Hooper's temperament. The subject had reference to secret sin and those sad mysteries which we hide from our nearest and dearest and would fain conceal from our own consciousness, even forgetting that the omniscient can detect them. A subtle power was breathed into his words. Each member of the congregation, the most innocent girl, and the man of hardened breast, felt as if the preacher had crept upon them behind his awful veil and discovered their hoarded iniquity of deed or thought. Many spread their clasped hands on their bosoms. There was nothing terrible in what Mr. Hooper said, at least no violence, and yet with every tremor of his melancholy voice the hearers quaked. An unsought pathos came hand in hand with awe. So sensible were the audience of some unwonted attribute in their minister that they longed for a breath of wind to blow aside the veil, almost believing that a stranger's visage would be discovered, though the form, gesture and voice were those of Mr. Hooper. At the close of services, the people hurried out with indecorous confusion, eager to communicate their pent-up amazement and conscious of lighter spirits the moment they lost sight of the black veil. Some gathered in little circles, huddled closely together, with their mouths all whispering in the center. Some went homeward alone, wrapped in silent meditation. Some talked loudly and profaned the Sabbath day with ostentatious laughter. A few shook their sagacious heads, intimating that they could penetrate the mystery, while one or two affirmed that there was no mystery at all, but only that Mr. Hooper's eyes were so weakened by the midnight lamp as to require a shade. After a brief interval, forth came good Mr. Hooper, also in the rear of his flock. Turning his veiled face from one group to another, he paid due reverence to the hoary heads, saluted the middle-aged with kind dignity as their friend and spiritual guide, greeted the young with mingled authority and love, and laid his hands on the little children's heads to bless them. Such was always his custom on the Sabbath day. Strange and bewildered looks repaid him for his courtesy. None, as on former occasions, aspired to the honor of walking by their pastor's side. Old Squire Saunders, doubtless by an accidental lapse of memory, neglected to invite Mr. Hooper to his table, where the good clergyman had been wont to bless the food almost every Sunday since his settlement. He returned, therefore, to the parsonage, and at the moment of closing the door was observed to look back upon the people, all of whom had their eyes fixed upon the minister. A sad smile gleamed faintly from beneath the black veil and flickered about his mouth, glimmering as he disappeared. How strange, said a lady, that a simple black veil, such as any woman might wear on her bonnet, should become such a terrible thing on Mr. Hooper's face. Something must surely be amiss with Mr. Hooper's intellects, observed her husband, the physician of the village. 
But the strangest part of the affair is the effect of this vagary even on a sober-minded man like myself. The black whale, though it covers only our pastor's face, throws its influence over his whole person and makes him ghost-like from head to foot. Do you not feel it so? Truly do I, replied the lady, and I would not be alone with him for the world. I wonder he is not afraid to be alone with himself. Men sometimes are so, said her husband. The afternoon service was attended with similar circumstances. At its conclusion, the bell tolled for the funeral of a young lady. The relatives and friends were assembled in the house, and the more distant acquaintances stood about the door, speaking of the good qualities of the deceased, when their talk was interrupted by the appearance of Mr. Hooper, still covered with his black veil. It was now an appropriate emblem. The clergyman stepped into the room where the corpse was laid, and bent over the coffin to take a last farewell of his deceased parishioner. As he stooped, the veil hung straight down from his forehead, so that if her eyelids had not been closed forever, the dead maiden might have seen his face. Could Mr. Hooper be fearful of her glance that he so hastily caught back the black veil? A person who watched the interview between the dead and living scrupled not to affirm that at the instant when the clergyman's features were disclosed, the corpse had slightly shuddered, rustling the shroud and muslin cap, though the countenance retained the composure of death. A superstitious old woman was the only witness of this prodigy. From the coffin, Mr. Hooper passed into the chamber of the mourners, and thence to the head of the staircase, to make the funeral prayer. It was a tender and heart-dissolving prayer, full of sorrow, yet so imbued with celestial hope, that the music of a heavenly harp, swept by the fingers of the dead, seemed faintly to be heard among the saddest accents of the minister. The people trembled, though they but darkly understood him when he prayed that they and himself and all of mortal race might be ready, as he trusted this young maiden had been, for the dreadful hour that should snatch the veil from their faces. The bearers went heavily forth, and the mourners followed, saddening all the street, with the dead before them, and Mr. Hooper in his black veil behind. "'Why do you look back?' said one in the procession to his partner. "'I had a fancy,' replied she, "'that the minister and the maiden's spirit were walking hand in hand.' And so had I at the same moment, said the other. That night, the handsomest couple in Milford Village were to be joined in wedlock. Though reckoned a melancholy man, Mr. Hooper had a placid cheerfulness for such occasions, which often excited a sympathetic smile where livelier merriment would have been thrown away. There was no quality of his disposition which made him more beloved than this. The company at the wedding awaited his arrival with impatience. Trusting that the strange awe which had gathered over him throughout the day would now be dispelled. But such was not the result. When Mr. Hooper came, the first thing that their eyes rested was on the same horrible black veil, which had added deeper gloom to the funeral, and could portend nothing but evil to the wedding. Such was its immediate effect on the guests, that a cloud seemed to have rolled duskily from beneath the black crape, and dimmed the light of the candles. The bridal pair stood up before the minister but the bride's cold fingers quivered in the tremulous hand of the bridegroom, and her death-like paleness caused a whisper that the maiden who had been buried a few hours before was come from her grave to be married. If ever another wedding was so dismal, it was that famous one where they told the wedding knell. After performing the ceremony, Mr. Hooper raised a glass of wine to his lips to the new-married couple in a strain of mild pleasantry that ought to have brightened the features of the guests like a cheerful gleam from the hearth. At that instant, catching a glimpse of his figure in the looking-glass, 
The black veil involved his own spirit in the horror with which it overwhelmed all others. His frame shuddered, his lips grew white, he spilled the untasted wine upon the carpet and rushed forth into the darkness. For the earth too had on her black veil. The next day, the whole village of Milford talked of little else than Parson Hooper's black veil. That and the mystery concealed behind it supplied a topic for discussion between acquaintances meeting in the street and good women gossiping at their open windows. It was the first item of news that the tavern keeper told to his guests. The children babbled of it on their way to school. One imitative little imp covered his face with an old black handkerchief, thereby so affrighting his playmates that the panic seized himself, and he well nigh lost his wits by his own vagary. It was remarkable that of all the busy bodies and impertinent people in the parish, not one ventured to put the plain question to Mr. Hooper. Wherefore, he did his thing. Hitherto, whenever there appeared the slightest call for such interference, he had never plagued advisers, nor shown himself averse to be guided by their judgment. If he erred at all, it was by so painful a degree of self-distrust that even the mildest censure would lead him to consider an indifferent action as a crime. Yet, though so well acquainted with this amiable weakness, no individual among his parishioners chose to make the black veil a subject of friendly remonstrance. There was a feeling of dread, neither plainly confessed nor carefully concealed, which caused each to shift the responsibility upon another, till at length it was found expedient to send a deputation of the church in order to deal with Mr. Hooper about the mystery, before it should grow into a scandal. Never did an embassy so ill discharge its duties. The minister received them with friendly courtesy, but became silent after they were seated, leaving to his visitors the whole burden of introducing their important business. The topic, it might be supposed, was obvious enough. There was the black veil swathed round Mr. Hooper's forehead, and concealing every feature above his placid mouth, on which at times they could perceive the glimmering of a melancholy smile. But that piece of crape, to their imagination, seemed to hang down before his heart, the symbol of a fearful secret between him and them. Were the veil but cast aside, they might speak freely of it, but not till then. Thus they sat a considerable time, speechless, confused, and shrinking uneasily from Mr. Hooper's eye, which they felt to be fixed upon them with an invisible glance. Finally, the deputies returned abashed to their constituents, pronouncing the matter too weighty to be handled, except by a council of the churches, if, indeed, it might not require a general synod. But there was one person in the village unappalled by the awe with which the black whale had impressed all beside herself. When the deputies returned without an explanation, or even venturing to demand one, she, with the calm energy of her character, Determined to chase away the strange cloud that appeared to be settling around Mr. Hooper, every moment more darkly than before. As his plightful wife, it should be her privilege to know what the black whale concealed. At the minister's first visit, therefore, she entered upon the subject with a direct simplicity, which made the task easier both for him and her. After he had seated himself, she fixed her eyes steadfastly upon the whale, but could discern nothing of the dreadful gloom that had so overawed the multitude. It was but a double fold of crepe, hanging down from his forehead to his mouth, and slightly stirring with his breath. No, she said aloud and smiling, there is nothing terrible in this piece of crepe, except that it hides a face, which I am always glad to look upon. Come, good sir, let the sun shine from behind the cloud. First lay aside your black veil, then tell me why you put it on. Mr. Hooper smiled glimmered faintly. There is an hour to come, said he when all of us shall cast aside our veils. Take it not amiss, beloved friend, if I wear this piece of crepe till then. Your words are a mystery, too, returned the young lady, 
take away the will from them at least. Elizabeth, I will, said he, so far as my vow may suffer me. Know, then, this veil is a type and a symbol, and I am bound to wear it ever, both in light and darkness, in solitude, and before the gaze of multitudes, and as with strangers, so with my familiar friends. No mortal eye will see it withdrawn. This dismal shade must separate me from the world. Even you, Elizabeth, can never come behind it. What grievous affliction hath befallen you? She earnestly inquired, that you should thus darken your eyes forever. If it be a sign of mourning, replied Mr. Hooper, I, perhaps, like most other mortals, have sorrows dark enough to be typified by a black veil. But what if the world will not believe that it is the type of an innocent sorrow, urged Elizabeth. Beloved and respected as you are, there may be whispers that you hide your face under the consciousness of secret sin. For the sake of your holy office, do away the scandal. The color rose into her cheeks as she intimated the nature of the rumors that were already abroad in the village. But Mr. Hooper's mildness did not forsake him. He even smiled again, that same sad smile, which always appeared like a faint glimmering of light, proceeding from the obscurity beneath the veil. If I hide my face for sorrow, there is cause enough, he merely replied, and if I cover it for secret sin, what mortal might not do the same? And with this gentle but unconquerable obstinacy, did he resist all her entreaties? At length Elizabeth sat silent. For a few moments she appeared lost in thought, considering probably what new methods might be tried to withdraw her lover from so dark a fantasy, which, if it had no other meaning, was perhaps a symptom of mental disease. Though of a firmer character than his own, the tears rolled down her cheeks. But in an instant, as it were, a new feeling took the place of sorrow. Her eyes were fixed insensibly on the black veil, and when, like a sudden twilight in the air, its terrors fell around her, she arose and stood trembling before him. And do you feel it then, at last? said he mournfully. She made no reply, but covered her eyes with her hand and turned to leave the room. He rushed forward and caught her arm. Have patience with me, Elizabeth, cried he passionately. Do not desert me. Though this veil must be between us here on earth, be mine, and hereafter there shall be no veil over my face, no darkness between our souls. It is but a mortal veil. It is not for eternity. Oh, you know not how lonely I am, and how frightened to be alone behind my black veil. Do not leave me in this miserable obscurity forever. Lift the veil but once and look me in the face, said she. Never. It cannot be, replied Mr. Hooper. Then farewell, said Elizabeth. She withdrew her arm from his grasp and slowly departed, pausing at the door to give one long shuddering gaze that seemed almost to penetrate the mystery of the black veil. But even amid his grief, Mr. Hooper smiled to think that only a material emblem had separated him from happiness, though the horrors which it shadowed forth must be drawn darkly between the fondest of lovers. From that time no attempts were made to remove Mr. Hooper's black veil, or by a direct appeal to discover the secret which it was supposed to hide. By persons who claimed a superiority to popular prejudice, it was reckoned merely an eccentric whim, such as often mingles with the sober actions of men otherwise rational, and tinges them all with its own semblance of insanity. But with the multitude was irreparably a bugbear. He could not walk the street with any peace of mind, 
so conscious was he that the gentle and timid would turn aside to avoid him, and that others would make it a point of hardihood to throw themselves in his way. The impertinence of the latter class compelled him to give up his customary walk at sunset to the burial ground, for when he leaned pensively over the gate, there would always be faces behind the gravestones, peeping at his black veil. A fable went the rounds that the stare of the dead people drove him thence. It grieved him to the very depth of his kind heart to observe how the children fled from his approach, breaking up their merriest sports, while his melancholy figure was yet afar off. Their instinctive dread caused him to feel more strongly than aught else that a preternatural horror was interwoven with the threads of the black crape. In truth, his own antipathy to the veil was known to be so great that he never willingly passed before a mirror, nor stooped to drink at a still fountain, lest in its peaceful bosom he should be affrighted by himself. This was what gave plausibility to the whispers, that Mr. Hooper's conscience tortured him for some great crime too horrible to be entirely concealed, or otherwise, than so obscurely intimated. Thus from beneath the black veil, they rolled a cloud into the sunshine, an ambiguity of sin or sorrow which enveloped the poor minister, so that love or sympathy could never reach him. It was said that ghost and fiend consorted with him there. With self-shudderings and outward terrors, he walked continually in its shadow, groping darkly within his own soul, or gazing through a medium that saddened the whole world. Even the lawless wind, it was believed, respected his dreadful secret, and never blew aside the veil. But still, good Mr. Hooper sadly smiled at the pale visages of the worldly throng as he passed by. Among all its bad influences, the black veil had the one desirable effect, of making its wearer a very efficient clergyman. By the aid of his mysterious emblem, for there was no other apparent cause, he became a man of awful power over souls that were in agony for sin. His converts always regarded him with a dread peculiar to themselves, affirming, though but figuratively, that before he brought them to celestial light, they had been with him behind the black veil. Its gloom, indeed, enabled him to sympathize with all dark affections. Dying sinners cried aloud for Mr. Hooper, and would not yield their breath till he appeared, though ever as he stooped to whisper consolation, they shuddered at the veiled face so near their own. Such were the terrors of the black veil, even when death had bared his visage. Strangers came long distances to attend service at his church, with a mere idle purpose of gazing at his figure, because it was forbidden them to behold his face. But many were made to quake ere they departed. Once during Governor Belcher's administration, Mr. Hooper was appointed to preach the election sermon. Covered with his black veil, he stood before the chief magistrate, the council, and the representatives, and wrought so deep an impression that the legislative measures of that year were characterized by all the gloom and piety of our earlier ancestral sway. In this manner, Mr. Hooper spent a long life, irreproachable in outward act, yet shrouded in dismal suspicions, kind and loving, though unloved, and dimly feared, a man apart from men, shunned in their health and joy, but ever summoned to their aid in mortal anguish. As years wore on, shedding their snows above his sable veil, he acquired a name throughout the New England churches, and they called him Father Hooper. Nearly all his parishioners who were of mature age when he was settled had been borne away by many a funeral. He had one congregation in the church, and a more crowded one in the churchyard, and having wrought so late into the evening, and done his work so well, it was now good Father Hooper's turn to rest.
several persons were visible by the shaded candlelight in the deck chamber of the old clergyman. Natural connections he had none, but there was the decorously grave though unmoved physician seeking only to mitigate the last pangs of the patient whom he could not save. There were the deacons and other eminently pious members of his church. There also was the Reverend Mr. Clark of Esbury, a young and zealous divine who had ridden in haste to pray by the bedside of the expiring minister. There was the nurse, no hired handmaiden of death, but one whose calm affection had endured thus long in secrecy, in solitude, amid the chill of age, and would not perish even at the dying hour. Who but Elizabeth? And there lay the hoary head of good father Hooper upon the dead pillow, with the black veil still swathed about his brow, and reaching down over his face, so that each more difficult gasp of his faint breath caused it to stir. All through life that piece of crape had hung between him and the world. It had separated him from cheerful brotherhood and woman's love, and kept him in that saddest of all prisons, his own heart, and still it lay upon his face, as if to deepen the gloom of his darksome chamber, and shade him from the sunshine of eternity. For some time previous, his mind had been confused, wavering doubtfully between the past and the present, and hovering it forward, as it were, at intervals, into the indistinctness of the world to come. There had been feverish turns which tossed him from side to side, and wore away what little strength he had. But in his most convulsive struggles, and in the wildest vagaries of his intellect, when no other thought retained its sober influence, he still showed an awful solicitude lest the black veil should slip aside. Even if his bewildered soul could have forgotten, there was a faithful woman at his pillow, who with averted eyes would have covered that aged face, which she had last beheld in the comeliness of manhood. At length, the dead-stricken old man lay quietly in the torpor of mental and bodily exhaustion, with an imperceptible pulse and breath that grew fainter and fainter, except when a long, deep and irregular inspiration seemed to prelude the flight of his spirit. The minister of Vesbury approached the bedside. Venerable Father Hooper, said he, the moment of your release is at hand. Are you ready for the lifting of the veil that shuts in time from eternity? Father Hooper at first replied, merely a feeble motion of his head. Then, apprehensive, perhaps, that his meaning might be doubted, he exerted himself to speak. Yea, said he in faint accents, my soul hath a patient weariness until that veil be lifted. And is it fitting, resumed the Reverend Mr. Clark, that a man so given to prayer, of such a blameless example, holy in deed and thought, so far a mortal judgment may pronounce, is it fitting that a father in the church should leave a shadow on his memory that may seem to blacken a life so pure? I pray you, my venerable brother, let not this thing be. Suffer us to be gladdened by your triumphant aspect as you go to your reward. Before the veil of eternity be lifted, let me cast aside this black veil from your face. And thus speaking, the Reverend Mr. Clark bent forward to reveal the mystery of so many years. But exerting a certain energy that made all the beholders stand aghast, Father Hooper snatched both his hands from beneath the bedclothes and pressed them strongly on the black veil, resolute to struggle if the minister of Vesbury would contend with the dying man. Never! cried the veiled clergyman. On earth, never! Dark old man! exclaimed the affrighted minister. With what horrible crime upon your soul are you now passing to the judgment? Father Hooper's breath heaved. It rattled in his throat. 
But with a mighty effort, grasping forward with his hands, he caught hold of life and held it back till he should speak. He even raised himself in bed, and there he sat, shivering with the arms of death around him, while the black whale hung down, awful at that last moment, in the gathered terrors of a lifetime. And yet the faint sad smile, so often there, now seemed to glimmer from its obscurity and linger on Father Hooper's lips. Why do you tremble at me alone? cried he, turning his veiled face round the circle of pale spectators. Tremble also at each other. Have men avoided me, and women shown no pity, and children screamed and fled only for my black veil? What, but the mystery which it obscurely typifies, has made this piece of crepe so awful? When the friend shows his inmost heart to his friend, the lover to his best beloved, when a man does not vainly shrink from the eye of his creator, loathsomely treasuring up the secret of his sin, then deem me a monster, for the symbol beneath which I have lived and die, I look around me, and lo, on every visage, a black veil. While his auditors shrank from one another in mutual affright, Father Hooper fell back upon his pillow, a veiled corpse, with a faint smile lingering on his lips. Still veiled, they laid him in his coffin, and a veiled corpse they bore him to the grave. The grass of many years has sprung up and withered on that grave. The burial stone is moss-grown, and good Mr. Hooper's face is dust. But awful is still the thought that it moulded beneath the black veil. End of The Minister's Black Veil by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama. What a bunch of spookiness that was. I hope we learned our lesson and whatever the moral of that spooky story was. Or we just got spooked. Anyway, hey everyone, I hope you're having a good time. I hope you're having fun enjoying these spooky stories. I'm trying to keep the music to the minimum because someone said, Hey, it's too loud and it's distracting from the spookiness. And I said, hey, I'm not that great at creating atmosphere for spookiness. Unless it's like an RPG or a haunted house. Anyway, so thanks everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, DB. Join us weekly when Farmer Dave and I get more into the Cthulhu Mythos and less about spooky stories. And we have special guests like Ken Height, Scott Glancy... In the past, we had Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman with all kinds of various writers, game designers, artists, musicians, you name it, we've had them on. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And join us again. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll ship you down to South Agua. You're going to get that shirt in the shop. PGTTCM.com. Check the show notes. Check out our sponsors. Check out the links. Check it out. And goodbye.